Well, this morning, we're going to continue to look at the book of John. And, you know, it's good, probably every week, to be reminded why John wrote John. John wrote John uh, because in John chapter 20, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. So what we know here is that the Apostle John writes the book of John so that we would know that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in Jesus, the Son of God, not the good teacher, the good prophet, the moral example, the good model of what it looks like to be a good person, not that God, not that person, but Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man, the 100% man and divine, by believing in Him, we may have eternal life. And what, you know, a lot of people write books for a lot of different reasons. Has there ever been someone sit down to write a book for such a reason? You know, you write a book, well, I want to put my memoir out there, I want people to know this, or I want to write this, and, you know, maybe this would be a good source of, of, of income. John says, no, I, you know why I wrote this book? So that people would know that Jesus is the Son of God and that people may have eternal life. Never has there been an author. Now we know God's breathing out through, through John. Never has there been a purpose of a book as important as this. That also means that every story we read, or as we've said, the, 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 the phrase there is pericope or passage. So you know how in your Bible there's probably... Headers, you know, this happened, and Jesus feeds the 5,000, or Jesus walks on the, on the water. Those, those are breaking them up into passages, or pericopes, or what we've been calling them, photos. Every single one of those has been carefully curated. In fact, John will go on and say, if I told you everything Jesus did while I was with him, there wouldn't be enough books. Like, I couldn't, be, there's not enough paper to fill, or, or in the world, right? It would fill all of that. So he's chosen, specifically chosen the things that he's writing about to reveal, to do those two things. Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing in him, we can have eternal life. That's really important. Otherwise, if we don't remember John's purpose and why he's chosen these, we can easily, very easily take out a passage and make it about us or about something else or a way to whatever. We can take any of these photos and say, oh, this one's about me. John would slap our hand and say, no, no, like I wrote this so you would know that Jesus is the Son of God. Stop making this about you. I'm trying to accomplish my purpose here. This photo album is all about Jesus being the Son of God and how you can have life through Him. Does that make sense? And so we look at this passage, John 6, 16 through 21, underneath that blanket of understanding why John chose this is for those two reasons. Now, we can spend a lot of our lives going through trying to create some sort of control or security. Relationship security, financial security, whatever. Today's story is about something that's uncontrollable. Uh, when I was three years old, three or four years old, we, I was born in Littleton, Illinois, population 200 till we left, 196. In that little town, a lot of tornadoes would hit that little town. And I remember uh, being just terrified. I don't remember much about it. Again, I was young. But I remember being terrified, my parents being scared, which is worse. If they're scared, 
there's trouble. I remember getting in the storm shelter and just remembering, you know, as my parents would say, we were not in control in the tornado. The only thing we could hope for in the tornado was that the structure we were in was going to make it through the tornado. We don't get to say, well, if, what if we pay the tornado off to take a left? What if whatever? What if we have a relationship with the tornado and like, we can't control what the tornado does. We're just, we're just hoping that what we're in is going to get us through it. I also remember a, a, another time when I was really, uh, I was older, obviously. Uh, we had our first child, Les, and we were on a boat in uh, the middle of Lake Levon, which is like the size of the, um, the, the, the reservoir here near us. Uh, and a storm broke out. And I remember being, you know, and having my little son, Les, at that point, he was still like this size. And uh, I remember having him and the storm broke out. We're on a pontoon boat and thinking, oh, no, like, what do we do? Like, you're in the water. Like, you don't, there's nothing you can do. You felt hopeless. And I remember we just, you know, we, we, we made it to shore, fortunately, but I was scared. The waves were hitting. We were bouncing. I was so nervous. I mean, we had life jackets, but, you know, you don't want to test a life jacket with your infant son. Complete fear of not being in control. And I know today, you know, the end of June 2020, we may feel that way too. We may feel like, oh my goodness, we have no control of this. I mean, we were just talking. We don't know what six weeks is going to look like. We don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. Like, things change so rapidly. And we're out of, it's, no one's in control. We have, there's, there's a lot of smart people in this world. I mean, none of them are on this stage, but there's a lot of smart people in this world. And I'm just amazed, like, how can, how can none of these really smart people figure something out where we can control this thing, where we can feel like we have control? Give, us, give me the app, give me the whatever that makes this all okay. Oh, it's really expensive. Okay, we'll figure out how to buy that so we can be in control. Whether you are the wealthiest person or the poor, you are, there's no control. We are all under this. And every day it feels like there's one more wave, one more news feed of upheaval, of feeling like things are, this is chaos. Like I've, what are we going to do? The only thing we can hope for is to find refuge in something that's going to make it through the storm. That's our only hope. Because we can't control these other things as much as we'd like to. So today we're going to look at a storm on a sea that's uncontrollable. And the only way out of it is found in the one who walks over the storm, who walks over the waves. We're going to need someone above the water. John 6, 16-21. John 6, 16-21. And I'm going to read from the ESV. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It's I. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today in the midst of, of chaos and confusion. 
not knowing what tomorrow is going to hold, not knowing what this afternoon is going to hold, what new wave of news will batter us this afternoon. Father God, in the midst of that, in the midst of suffering all over the world, we come to you. We slow our hearts down and we come to this room and we open your word to hear from you, the one who walks over the water. And we ask you, Father, to reveal, to reveal truth to us. We know that your spirit the Holy Spirit's ministry is to illuminate your word, to help us remember, to, to remind us, to cause us to see, to convict us. So, Father God, we ask for the ministry of your Holy Spirit in this moment that we would understand who you are, that you are over and in control. But that not only that, not only are you in control, but you are our refuge. And you will stand through any storm. May we know that today. May we know that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in Him, we can have eternal life. And it is in His name, in His name alone, we pray this and all things. Amen. This morning, we'll look at three things and then at some points of application. So the dark and stormy sea, the one who's over the sea, and the one who went into the sea. And then three points of application. So first, the dark and stormy sea. In ancient times, the sea was in like Hebrew poetry uh, and myths, the sea was a place of confusion, was a place of chaos. You can't control the sea. It's, it's uncontrollable, and, it, was, and it, was, uh, it had a negative connotation, and it was, you know, it, was, it was dangerous. In Hebrew poetry, it was a place of danger. And so that's the context we see this. And so not only was the sea have a symbolic meaning of, of danger and chaos and confusion, but this particular sea, uh, and here's a picture of it, except for this picture of it, it's real calm. But the truth is, sea, storms are sudden at the Sea of Galilee. So this is the Sea of Galilee, and it's 700 feet below sea level, and the mountains around it go up to about 2,000 feet above sea level. So what ha- I'm not a, um, a weatherologist. There's a name for that. I just can't think of what it is. Meteorologist. Is that the name? People are shaking heads. Okay. So I'm not a meteorologist, but something bad happens when wind flies down the mountain and crashes into the warm waters of the sea. That's when storms happen. And they would happen very quickly, out of nowhere. So again, Hebrew poetry, ancient times, the sea is a dark, confusing, dangerous place. And this one is maybe the king of all of that. Like this is just a, a scary place to be. So the, this is the, the setting we get for, our, for the disciples is going out onto this sea. So they're going across the sea, something that represents chaos and destruction. Verse 18 tells us the sea, what do you know? The sea became stormy. Verse 17 tells us that they are, they are in the sea and it was also dark and that Jesus had not yet come to them. And here, again, remember John carefully choosing his photos or his, his passages and the things he's telling us. He tells us, they are in the midst of chaos and in the dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Because we know in John chapter 1, it says that Jesus is the light of man. That we, in our own natural state, are in darkness. And so John is, 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 is certainly pointing our minds back to that. That we are in the dark and on the sea, and it is stormy. And Jesus comes to us in that. And that's what we're seeing in this story. Here are the disciples, in the dark 
on the sea, and it's storming, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Right? This is a bad situation. Chaotic, confusing. On the sea, which represents chaos and confusion, sudden storm that would create chaos and confusion. In the dark, which is chaotic and confusing. What an image of urgency and helplessness for the disciples in the boat. And when, I, you know, when you think about the Bible and the whole Bible, and you think about times of confusion and a, a storm, a, a life storm, is there a more dramatic or more terrifying example of a person going into a storm than the book of Job? Because Job had done everything right. Like we would think, boy, he should have some... Con- if anyone had control over their life, shouldn't it have been in, in the Old Testament? Shouldn't we have seen Job have some control in his life? Shouldn't he have been like highly blessed? Because we know in Job, it tells us that he is a blameless and upright man. So in the, in the Old Testament, we get somebody following the law. That should mean he gets to have some control and some say over what, he, what happens in his life. Like he deserves it. Like that's, that's, that's our logic, right? He's done nothing wrong. In chapters 1 and 2 in Job, this storm is unleashed on him. And, you know, again, I know we may feel like every news feed is something worse right now. Nothing. You're starting to, like I, I was telling Dylan a couple times this week, I've been throwing pity parties for myself and nobody's been coming to them except for me. Uh, like if you're feeling like throwing a little pity party for yourself, go back to Job 1 and 2 and see, see his news feed. His newsfeed in chapters 1 and 2, again, he, he's blessed. He has a lot of things. He's an upright, blameless man. It says people come and give him bad news. Hey, by the way, enemy attacked, killed all your livestock. It says while they were telling him that, another person comes and says, by the way, strong wind came out of the forest and killed all your kids. While they were telling him that, like, Wave after wave after wave. And, you know, if you've ever been to the ocean, the worst thing about, the, you know, getting hit by a wave is getting up and then getting hit by another wave. Like, you feel like, oh, my goodness. Job is getting battered by some waves in Job 1 and 2. How confusing would it have been for Job? I don't understand. What's going on? I thought I did everything right. Why do I keep getting hit by all of these waves? In, nine, in chapter 9, 17 of Job, he says, crying out to God, for he crushes me with a tempest, with a storm, and multiplies my wounds without cause. So what do we see there? Job saying, I'm getting crushed by God in a storm, and it doesn't make any sense. He says, without cause. I can't connect the dots between what I'm going through and the storm and, and with God's goodness. I don't understand. Job is confused. He's in the dark about why he's getting this going on in his life. That's what Job says. He's desperate. You can hear his confusion. Remember, these things happen very suddenly. Again, there's probably never been a more sudden, head-turning, confusing, heavy storm in the history of mankind than what Job went through. So the context of the photo we're seeing here in John chapter 6 is a photo or, or a, a passage about Jesus and, uh, and, and, and man, the disciples, in a boat in the midst of darkness and a suddenly stormy sea. 
So the dark, stormy sea of our situation. Next, the one who is over the sea. So before we move on and look at Jesus actually walking on the water towards the disciples, we also have to remember this. In Genesis chapter 1, remember what we hear about the Spirit. He is hovering over the waters, over the expanse. That God, in the beginning, hovered over the waters, was over the waters. Right? In Exodus chapter 14, we hear that God did what? He parted the waters. The thing that separated them from the promised land. He parted the waters. Now, in Psalm 77, speaking on this Exodus passage, the psalmist writes this. Psalm 77, 16 to 20. Again, expounding on, commentating on Exodus 14. So the psalmist here is talking about what happened in Exodus 14. Helping unlock the narrative of Exodus 14. Psalm 77, 16 through 20 says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. So first of all, we understand that the sea, this dark, chaotic thing of Hebrew poetry, is afraid of God. That's what the psalmist is saying. The greater power is not the sea and the deep, it's God. Verse 17 The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So we hear here in the psalm that in the Exodus what happened was God, the one who scares the water because he's over them, parted the sea, and he led them through even though his footprints were unseen. So in, the, in, in creation, God hovers over the waters. In Exodus, he is leading them through the waters. He is in control of these things. The seas tremble at these things. And we get our passage here in John chapter 6. Now, if you've ever been to a zoo, or if you know what a lion sounds like, they, it's appropriate. Like the lion has an appropriate noise. Like in other words, it would be like anticlimactic if the lion roared and it was like some wimpy whatever. But no, when the lion roars, like that's, that sounds terrifying. If you are in, if you were in the, you know, in, in, in the savannah or wherever lions are, I, I'm sounding like a complete idiot today. I don't know who takes care of the weather or where lions exist. But it's God's word, right? It, it's powerful and it's, it has wisdom. So if you're where lions are and you're going for a walk in the middle of the night and you're walking and you start hearing like hyenas and like I'm basing a lot of this from the Lion King and those animals coexisting. Sorry. Like, so if you're walking through the darkness and you hear, like, crickets or hyenas, like, you're probably a little afraid. Like, oh, my goodness, this is scary. But then when a lion roars and you're like, no, I know what that is. Forget the crickets and the beetles and the frogs and the hyenas. That I'm afraid of. All of a sudden, I'm sure everything, like, you stop hearing everything else. Everything else goes strangely dim, and you're afraid because of what you know is behind that roar. You immediately associate that noise with the powerful beast that is the lion. 
right? I assume. Okay. So this is what's happening in our story here in John chapter 6. Verse 19 says, they were afraid. The men in this boat would also know what happened in Genesis. They'd also know what happened in Exodus. They would also know that there's only one who controls nature, and there's only one who hovers over the water. There's only one who's, who can walk over waves. There's only one. This is not Simon the magician. This is not some magic person. There's only one person. This is not King David. This is not the prophet. There's only one who gets to walk over and control nature. And by the way, the word for walk that we get here is not even a, like Jesus, like, whoa, this is tricky, like me on a boat. Like, the word we get for walk is almost like he was sightseeing, like, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a five-year-old in a toy store, just walking, or like my wife in Target, like just walking around, like just sightseeing. That's the image of God, Jesus, that we get here. He's not afraid. Like he's just having, he's going for, like in, in, the other, in the other accounts of this story, it almost says that they, he almost missed them. Like he's just off for a walk over the dark, stormy, chaotic, confusing sea. That's Jesus. And they saw him just like we would know, we would fear a lion because we know what a lion sounds like and we know that we should fear a lion. When they saw that, they said, that's, that's not, that's God. And you understand that the theophanies are the moments when God revealed himself in the Old Testament. Again, they would know that. They would know the theophanies of the whirlwind, of the earthquake, of the way God spoke through the burning bush. They would know that. When that happens in the Old Testament in their scriptures, when that happens in the Old Testament, there's only one proper response, fear. Like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, like that's God trembling. That is, so all I'm saying is it's an appropriate response, even on the midst of the dark stormy sea, to be afraid of the one who makes the deep tremble. Remember what John's trying to do here. Tell us, Jesus is the Son of God. So in that moment, they see him walking on the water, and Jesus lifts his veil just a little bit, says, oh, by the way, remember who I am. I'm not the king that they wanted to capture and, and make a king, some political king. I'm over the waters. I was there at the beginning hovering over the waters. For a moment, I, I do I like to think about all of these stories when Jesus is talking to people, whether it be the woman at the well, the, the, the purification jars at the wedding of Cana, the Sabbath, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, cleansing the temple. I like to think about what's going on in Jesus' infinite mind in this moment. And I just think, here he is walking over the waters and he remembers. Like he you ever do, go somewhere and you have nostalgia? Like, oh, this reminds me of so-and-so. Like, oh, that was a great whatever. I remember that. Like, I wonder if, again, it's not part of the Bible, but I wonder if Jesus walking over the waters, he, he has nostalgia of hovering over the seas at creation. Like, oh, I remember that. Or walking through the Red Sea, leading the people of Israel away from Egyptian captivity. Oh, I remember. I remember that one day going through Egypt or going through the Red Sea. Like in that moment, there's Jesus walking over the waters with all of that going on. It's ridiculous. Going back to our story of Job caught in his sea or caught in his storm, 
It's not lost on him either, the power of God. In Job 9.8, Job says this. This is what Job writes. Who alone stretched out the heavens? So who was at creation? And trampled or walked or treaded over the waves of the sea. Job, in Job 9.8, says, Who has control over all creation and can walk on the water? That's what Job says in 9.8. In the midst of his storm, he says, who could, who could do that? Like, this is the God he's trying to be made right with. Who could, who could do that? Only, only God could walk on water. Job knows who the wave treader is. And we see here that Job is pleading with that person, with the one, with Yahweh, who treads over the sea. So in the midst of the stormy, uncontrollable sea and the confusion of the darkness, the I am who treads over the waves, the seas, comes to them. I almost forgot. Jesus does confirm that he is the one to be feared. Like, it'd be one thing if, you know, you're in the savannah and you, you hear the lion, you're like, oh, that's a lion. And then you're like, I think. Like, I, I get my noises mixed up. It's either a lion or, you know, a, I can't think of another animal right now. A lizard. Like, it's either, it's, Jesus will confirm it. You know why? How he confirms that he is who they're afraid of? that he is the Lion of Judah, he confirms it this way. He says, it is I. That's what our translations say. Original language says, ego emi, which means I am. He says, it is the I am. They're afraid. He says, it's I am. Don't worry, it's I am. Now we know in Exodus, that's what the burning bush says. When Moses says, oh, you want me to go before the most powerful person on the entire planet? and ask him to give away his most valuable resource and the slaves, you want me to do that? I'm going to need, I'm gonna need, I'm gonna need some power. <laughs> like, who's sending me to do that? On whose behalf am I doing that? And what does the bush say? Tell him, tell him the I am sends you. The I am. God, the one who was at creation, sends you. So this is what Jesus, walking over the water, he's going to confirm what they believe. He says, it is the I am over the, over the water. Like this all is meant to lead us to a point, as John says in John chapter 20, that we would realize that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the I am. He told us in the beginning, John chapter 1, like we could have just read the prologue, and if, you, if we would have believed that, we wouldn't have to read all, all these things are just showing us. Remember in the prologue, he says, all things were created through him, the Word. So Jesus has confirmed that explicitly here. Thirdly, the one who went into the sea. There's a greater problem for Job. If we go back to Job, there's a greater problem. In Job chapter 8, Bildad is giving Job some advice about how to not go through a storm. Like things are bad. And so he's got this great advisor who's not listening and who's harsh, comes up to him. Bildad says, hey, uh, you need to be perfect. Like you need to be right. If you could be right, like it would be okay. If you'd be blameless, like you must have done something, you could be right. Job, at the beginning of Job chapter 9, will confirm that. He says, listen, I know what you say is true. And then here is the biggest question of mankind that we all need to, that we all have to wrestle with. In the midst of the storm, here's the real question. Here's the real storm. Job says, I know you're right about that, but who can be right before that God? Who can be right before the wave treader is what Job is asking. 
Like, who could possibly be right? How could I be just? How could I be, have a right relationship with the wave treader? He stretched out the heavens. You're telling me if I just have a right relationship with him, I'll be okay? I get it, but who could do it? That's Job's real problem, is rightness or righteousness in the eyes of God. In the book of Jonah, we see a foreshadowing, and many commentators point to this when we talk about, um, when we talk about you know, Jesus on the water and in the storms. That we, you know, this was another time when a bunch of people were on a boat and were like, what is going on? It's a little confusing. What happened? In Job chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, it says, what shall we do to you? They're talking to Jonah. That the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew and is more tempestuous. He said to them, Jonah says to them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. So Jonah says in the midst of that sea, the only way this sea gets quieted is if you throw me into it. You know, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, there's one greater than Jonah who's with you. He's talking about himself. Jesus is directly and explicitly calling himself the greater Jonah, the one who, remember how, remember the story of Jonah? People are saved when Jonah goes into the sea. Now Jesus is saying, the greater Jonah, Jesus is going to have to go into the sea. He's going to have to go into death so that the people can be saved. It's the only way. Job, you want to know how anyone can be right before God? You're right. No one can. There is one way. God's going to have to go into the sea. And that's what happens. It's the reason why John chapter 6 verse 20 finishes the way it does. 620a says, do not be afraid, or he sa- it says, I am. It's I. It is the I am. The way that sentence should end in the Old Testament is, take your shoes off. I'm going to have to hide you in a cleft of a rock. Be afraid. That's the way that verse should end in the Old Testament. That's the way it would end in the Old Testament. You understand? But for some reason, and we know why, in John chapter 6, it ends differently. He says, it is the I am, do not be afraid. That, should not, that doesn't make sense to an Old Testament audience. Why can the disciples not be afraid, not try to find the cleft of the rock in the presence of the I am, the one who walks over the seas? Again, it's because we know that he was going to go into the sea so that we could be made right before God. The Apostle John experiences this in another way. So he experiences it on the boat. He also experiences it in his vision of Revelation. In Re- Revelation, verses, or chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, he sees a figure whose face shines like the sun, whose mouth sounds like the roaring waters, and has an appropriate response to that God or to that person, that being. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So John in Revelation is terrified. Appropriate response to the I am. Falls on his face as if he were dead. Jesus reaches out and says, Fear not. You know me. You saw me on the water. 
Do not be afraid. How can you be right before God? Because I went into death. And I've been resurrected so that you could have life in me. Remember why John wrote the book of John? So that we would know that he's the son of God. We would know that he's the I am. And that we, would, we could know that we don't need to fear. That there is no more fear. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 12, 8 says us, tells us. The only way is the one who was above the water had to go into the water so that when he came out of the water, we could have a resurrection like his. Again, we said the I am over the seas is meant to lead us to a posture. Like we ought to be in fearful awe of that. That's an appropriate response. But the truth of the great I am going into the seas is meant to melt our hearts, to see Jesus for who he is, to see what he did for us, and then to follow him. Again, when you understand who God is, when, when you understand who Jesus Christ is, and you understand what he did for you, it ought to melt your heart. But it's got to go in that linear progression. You've got to know, this is not just some man who died for you. Oh, wow, that, that's great. You know, I think most fathers would say, I would die for my kids. But this is not just some earthly father. This is the great I am who was there hovering over the waters, who led the people through the Red Sea. That person, Jesus Christ, who was there at the beginning, went into the sea for you. That's different. And it ought to melt our hearts. So beautiful. Before we move on to some points of application, you know, baptism... We, you know, we practice immersion baptism here. We talk about Romans 6, 4, buried with Christ in likeness of his death. We say that on one, one reason why we do that is because of the symbolism of going into the darkness, going into the water, being buried under the water so that then we can be raised to walk in the newness of life like Jesus Christ. Right? So every time we practice baptism, we're illustrating that the one who was over the water went into the water so that we could come up back up out of the water with new life. It's so beautiful. All right, let's end with just a three points or three implications or applications for us today. First, worship him. This is the appropriate response. In Matthew's account of this story of the, 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 the men on the boat in the stormy sea, in Matthew's account it says, when he got into the boat, they worshipped him, saying, truly, you're the Son of God. Again, Jesus gets into the boat. They say, you are the Son of God. And I, if you don't get that first, everything that follows will not have power, will not have weight. He's got to understand that the one who is going to die for us was the one who was over us. You've got to first understand that. All sin and rebellion is against him. So they worshipped him, the, the God who, the wave treader, the one who Job said, who could be right with the one who walks over the waves? He is worthy of our worship. You know, the book of Job, again, going back to that, is not about finding an answer for why we go through these things. And I think sometimes we can think our spiritual maturity is found in our ability to understand the storms that we go through. Well, then Job was an idiot. Then Job's not spiritually mature, I guess. Because Job never understood. Our spiritual maturity is not found in our ability to understand God's plans and purposes. Our spiritual maturity is found in trusting the God who is over all the storms. 
to just trust and rest in that. That's when we know we've, it's not our ability to say, well, let me show you why you went through this thing back in, you know, that storm. Let me, let me, let me explain why 2020 was a good thing for you. Like, that's not, that doesn't make you spiritually mature. Spiritually mature says, let me tell you, I have no idea. But here's what I do know. That the one who walks over the storms is in control. Secondly, we rest in him. In the, midst, in the midst of the tempest of mankind's doing, a storm of suffering set off by our rebellion against God, we rest in Him. Remember I said, and whether it be on the, on the lake, in the pontoon boat, or in the tornado, our only hope was in the thing that we were finding shelter in. I hope that shelter was built well. <clears throat> I hope that boat is buoyant. That seems right. <laughs> uh, I hope, like we're putting hope in that. So here's the truth of what we have. When we say we're resting in Christ, when we say we're in Him, see all of the New Testament, when we say we're in Him, what we're saying is in the midst of the storm, we have taken up refuge and shelter in the storm in Him. And what we can know is that He makes it through. That's why in Revelation He says, don't be afraid. I, I have the keys over all of that now. It's okay. We rest in Him. What it also means is that our good works, that our finances, that our strength, that our relationships are not what get us through the storms. It's easy for us in the church to believe that our good works are another or can be another layer of insulation in the storm. They weren't for Job. All his good deeds and work, they did not help in that storm. Our good works are not another layer of insulation in the storm. They are instead meant to reveal the one who walks over and into the storm in our stead. So we do good works to just reveal the truth of the God who walked over the storm, went into the storm for our sake. And so now we want to show him all glory, honor, and praise through our works. He gave us a way to be hidden in him. We find confidence in him. And so third, finally, we follow him. We see that the great I am descended into the waters for us, went to the cross, died, was resurrected, and our hearts are melted by that love. We receive him as our Lord and Savior, and we take shelter in him, and we see that he is the answer to Job and mankind's greatest question on the dark and stormy sea of how can we be made right with the God who walks over the waves. We receive Jesus, and then we walk in new life, reflecting his love to the rest of the world. John wrote a testament, wrote a book that people would believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and that by believing in him, they could find eternal life. Our life and our good works are meant to be that same testament. Like I said, what better, uh, what better reason or what better catalyst could any person have for writing a book here's the truth if you are in christ if you are a christian walking in the newness of life what better reason could you have for waking up every day than to reveal that jesus is the son of god and that by believing in him you can have eternal life that's what we're called to called to do we are living stones writing testaments through our actions and through our deeds trying to point people to that jesus christ who people can have life in him. That's our calling as a church. 
And it is a big, big calling. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that you've given us. We acknowledge that you gave us this day. You are sustaining all things. You are in control of all things. You are over all things. You are over the waves, but you also went into the waves so that we can find eternal life in you, so that we could find shelter in you, so that you would be our refuge. And because you are our refuge and not our goodness and our good works, we can have confidence today. And out of that confidence and boldness, may we then walk in a way that would show the world that you are the Son of God and that by believing in you, mankind can have eternal life and be made right before the God who tramples the waves. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this image of you. We thank you for your Apostle John writing these words to us. May we believe them. We need your help. May your spirit work in our hearts so that we trust these things and not only know these things with our minds, but that we would be doers of these things. That we would not just stand still, but we would walk in the newness of life. Father, it is in the work of your son, Jesus Christ, that we come before you and pray this in all things. Amen.